You are listening to the Therefore a Geek podcast, episode 79. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore a Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. And I'm Dofino, a brother Seamus. Yeah, I forgot about that one. We'll come back to that in a second. <laughs> so, obviously, uh, today we are going to talk Hollywood. Uh, don't have a whole real specific plan. We're just going to kind of see where the conversation goes. I think we've all got a couple things we want to talk about, but nothing too specific. Uh, however, you know, in the Hollywood mindset here, obviously this week we've lost uh, lost two actors. We lost uh, we lost uh, Gene Wilder, and yeah, uh, I was which thinking, is, which is I was pretty I, terrible. And, I was going to tell you, uh, Gene Wilder died, and we got like seventy four shares on our Facebook page. And even though like I was sad he died, that's a lot of shares. I'm like maybe maybe Hollywood people need to die more often. Yeah, that's. That's I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I I had similar thoughts. Um, <laughs> like, and then see, I'm this up. is the first this is the first death in 2016. Everybody's been talking about um, David Bowie and and um, Prince and all them and and yeah, okay, that sucked and yeah, they had a huge impact on pop culture and whatnot. But this is the first one where I was like, damn, that sucks. Like, when I first saw it, this, Andrew shared it with me before even any of the news sites had gotten a hold of the information yet. And I just went, you, no, no, it sucked. It really sucked. That one hit me pretty hard. Yeah, I, I mean, I gotta, I gotta say, I mean, both David Bowie and, and Prince were, were also pretty big hits, especially David Bowie. But this is one, I mean, Gene Wilder was, I mean, we talked, you know, again, David Bowie and Prince were both two people who are two of the best people at what they do. Gene Wilder is also one of those people. I mean, uh, there you know, four movies, at least to me, come to mind. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and the producer producers that are just amazing, amazing films. Yeah. And, and he is integral to the, the what makes those movies great. Yeah. He was a big part of the sci-fi and comedy and all that stuff from the, just the stuff that we grew up with. It's crazy. And he also, uh, as far as comedy is concerned, uh, his his collaboration with Richard Pryor. That's actually what I remembered him most from when I was really young, and I'd be over at, like my grandpa, uh, my grandmother's house in Bayonne, is like Channel Eleven WPIX before it was the WB or or, or CW when I was younger. It was just channel 11 new york wpix was just the new york station right everything about it had to do with new york every movie was like new york uh, centered right or every show had new york about it or something like that and they would always run like the gene wilder comedies that he did with richard Pryor. yeah well i mean and we were talking about that i mean blazing saddles richard Pryor, you know wrote a significant portion of that mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And I think I think honestly I think that's what made it so good is that you know you've got well, honestly you have a black guy writing the black jokes white guys writing right jokes Mel Brooks writing all, everything else you know it just it, it worked and like, those are still some of the funniest movies I've ever seen mm-hmm. especially oh, yeah. especially Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein I I always I have a soft spot for um, see no evil hear no evil yeah the one he did with Pryor were, um. Like one of them is like blind, the other is deaf or something. I think I think Pryor was blind in it. I thought that was always. I don't know why. I always thought that one was really funny. Yeah. 
I see, the only one that I mean, like I love, I love the producers. I will admit though that I think uh, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick did a better job than than Zero Mostel and, and Gene Wilder, but it's still really good. And and I've been told I, that it's blasphemy to say for for me to say that. <laughs> no, it, it is, but you know, right now we can't. I can't burn you at this distance. <laughs> also, I'm not. So we... You know. I, I'm not. Uh, I don't float in water. So, well, if oh. anyone's gonna ca- if anyone's gonna catch fire for blasphemy, it's gonna be me first. This right? is also true. So, like when when I go up in flames, then you have to worry. Right. Like, oh, oh shit! That happened. Oh damn it! I keep a stock of holy water just in case we ever record the podcast all in one one place. <laughs> no, that's because you're gonna burn more. What's wrong with you, woman? <laughs> just stings. So and then right. I, the the other unfortunate passing was uh, actor John Polito, who's uh, best known for his various roles in Coen Brothers films. Uh, he was, as Jude said, he's a, the the private investigator in uh, The Big Lebowski. Oh, who also, who okay, also that thinks guy. who also thinks the dude is a private investigator. Right. I love that part of the film in particular, just because he goes, you know. When the dude asks him, hey, who are you working for? You know, Jackie Treewater, the Big Lebowski, who, whose side are you on? He's like, the Knutsons. And, like, the dude goes, <laughs> who the fuck are the Knutsons? I love that moment because you know by that point in the film, anyone watching it for the first time is also going, who the fuck are the Knutsons? Right, that's the, <laughs> just, the, 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 the plot. That. It's hard to say the plot goes off the rails at that point. Right, but the plot takes a hard left, and you're going, "What? Wait, what? No, yes, yeah, maybe." Yeah, I mean, because it, it is the Big Lebowski is is one of those old school com- confusing noir detective films, or in that vein, where you're watching it and you're just going, "What is going on here?" But it's still fun to watch. And that moment where he goes, "I work for the Knutsons," and you're like, "What? What? What are we doing now?" Well, I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's the parody of the Raymond Chandler uh, film and book. Um, was it The Big Sleep? Big, Big Sleep, yeah it's, yeah. it's written right after Big Sleep, which is one of the best noir films ever written. And, and Right, this but, is but like... Raymond Chandler freely admits that he has no idea who actually committed the crime. Yeah, well, there, you know the story behind that. There's a, a character that gets killed, and I can't remember who it is. And Howard Hawks, who directed The Big Sleep, and William Faulkner, who wrote the screenplay, were working on uh, while they were filming it. We're like, well, you know, who killed this guy? What 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 goes on here? I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, they're they're trying to work it out, and they call Chandler up, and they go, Chandler, this is like this story secondhand, so I don't know if it's gospel, but but I do love it. And he goes, and they call Chandler, who killed the guy in the car? Who, who, who did that? And Chandler's response is, I don't know. <laughs> right. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's but, 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 that's, but that's the kind of shit that happens in those old noirs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, the Big it's, Sleep it's is, great. is yeah. The Big Sleep is like chief among them. It, it, it was known for being incoherent. <laughs> and uh, John, well, let me make sure I pronounce the guy's uh, Polito, who who he's just one of these character actors who's in everything. He's yeah. everywhere, and he's just one of these great character workhorse actors that you know will definitely be missed because when you see him in a film, you're like, oh, it's that guy. You, know, right. you always know him as the character. Right. You never know his name. It's always, hey, that guy. That guy. I know that guy. I've seen that guy before. 
Big Blowski. Miller's Crossing. I remember him. Yeah, but boy, he had just absolute work. <laughs> the guy who was in the thing. <laughs> yeah, it was um, when I posted this online. A friend, a friend said, "I'll always remember him as the monster who had uh, Damon Wayne's grandma killed in Blank Man." <laughs> right. So you know, right. I'm, you know what I mean? Like that's that's the it's, kind of character. I don't think that's a great. Uh, to me, that's a great legacy. Right. It's, it's all the very bizarre associations. Mm. Yeah. That pencil mustache guy, and he wasn't even that old, guys. He was sixty-five. Yeah, but I think he was yeah, young. He was sick. He died in the hospital, so I think he was. Oh, okay. Sick. So. Yeah, I didn't know. So let's in, in keeping with Hollywood. Let's let's move on to at least our first spitball topic, right? Yeah. And and that is my my kind of hypothesis at this point. At the end of. The summer, I, I, you know, I got back in movies in 2015, so at the end of the summer of 2016, I was uh, fairly disappointed in the crop of blockbuster movies that had come out. And I had this thought of, like, does Hollywood even take chances anymore? And I don't blame them if they don't, but do they, and is it paying off? And I, I'm kind of at the, at the position where I don't think they do, because it's all remakes or reboots or sequels of at least partially known intellectual property quantities, or what they like to call them, properties in Hollywood. And it just feels like, I got this thought after watching the Bourne film a couple weeks ago, watching it and just going, this is, I could have written this. This is the same thing over and over again. And I was just you could have, you could have You could have written a logarithm that would write it for you. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's... That, I get that the average per... Uh, I get... Oops, sorry, algorithm, yes. Um... I get that a person can write something, you know, like you can write stuff and somebody else can write a thing and maybe it becomes a screenplay or maybe it doesn't. But when a computer can fucking write the the entire thing from beginning to end, just taking bits out of other um, examples, then it's stupid. And this goes back to what dude always says. There's no surprises in, in movies anymore. I disagree with that, that there's not ever a twist in a movie, but... I mean, well, give me, give me your, give me your best shot at this one, because I'm not married to it. But this is just my overall sense after the dread of summer 2016. Is is where do we feel cinema is versus well, think, something like TV? Well, I do think that there is the occasional movie, but I, the other thing too is that we imbibe so much entertainment, so much media that I wonder if we can be surprised anymore. And the example I'll give you is a conversation I had on Facebook earlier this week with another group of podcasters that were discussing Ex Machina, which is the movie about the uh, AI that's put in a robot female body. It's played by um, that beautiful woman. What's her name? Oh, Alicia Vikander. Yeah, I love she. Oh, man from Uncle, she's hot, right? She's so. uh, She was in Born, and her hair was always bunned up the same way. She's got these big brown doughy eyes. Yep, high cheekbones. She's just just everything about her is beautiful. Yeah, she's in in the new Michael. She's in the new Michael Fassbender movie this weekend. That I. Oh my God, dude! You are just gonna be a hot mess. I'm gonna be crying. (laughs) They're gonna escort you out of the theater without your pants. Yeah, someone was giving me a. I was, someone was giving me a hard time the other day. They would give me like, oh, you're just some heterosexual male. I was like, no, I'm a Fassbender sexual, which means <laughs> I, I have sex with women and Michael Fassbender. That's it. That's that's all it is. That's hot. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so Ex Machina, the ending of it, I, I th- dude, you've seen this movie, right? Mm-hmm. My, uh, Andrew, I'm not sure if you yeah. have. I have not. Basically, 
She's asking me this as I take a drink. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Yes. Trying to so, project into the microphone. <laughs> the ending of it is, it, the, the question throughout the movie is, is this AI in this robot's body, is it is it essentially human or is it not? And can it experience human emotion? Can it fall in love? That kind of thing. And the end of it. Hey, real quick, am I the only one who had the first two lines of Bohemian Rhapsody just pop in their head? <laughs> yes, but. You but are. <laughs> Please continue. The, um, so, so you end up at the end. She makes a choice. The this AI, and I thought, okay, cool. That isn't the typical Hollywood. Um, I I call it the the Blade Runner thing, although that's not a, an accurate, a perfectly accurate comparison. But the 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 guy falls in love with the machine, and the machine is able to fall in love with him, and they go off and make little robot half human babies. You know. Um, that doesn't happen in this in this movie. And so I was the only person that was saying that that was a genuine twist. Everybody else was saying, oh, it's totally predictable. I totally knew that was going to happen. And I was like, you you thought that she was going to close that guy up in the house and leave him to starve to death and then take his helicopter and fly to the city. You thought that was going to happen. I don't know. So okay, All right. So, so there's, there's two things to this. The tr- there's the tradition of Western technophobia and, and Eastern and Eastern like techno embracing, right? So in the West, like Donnell just sent me a video called iMom on Vidmeo. It's like a short film, very well done, about uh, a robot AIs that take care of kids and okay. stuff like that. It, it, in Japan or somewhere? It, it, it was American or maybe it was British. Oh. But it okay, was West, so it was, it was in... Western. Right, huh. let's just say Western. And I, I just thought in science fiction, the West has a tradition of being very frightened of AIs. Mm-hmm. Very frightened of AIs. Yep. I remember like a, a guy I really admire. Yeah, Skynet. I mean, just think of, you go down the litany of being very frightened of AIs. And then you've got guys like Sam Harris who did a TED Talk on you need to be scared of AIs. And then there's, you know, in Japan, it's almost the exact opposite. The AIs are almost always the, the human, the, the, the cyborgs or the AIs are always the protagonists and the humans are out to go get them. So in America, it's not surprising if the AI would do something nefarious in some way. If it's a Western film, whether it was that specific like event, like did I really know that she was going to lock him in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, the office? No, I didn't know that that precise moment was going to happen. But I knew she was going to get him somehow, right? You, that's that's what it is. Huh. See, I, I didn't look at it that way at all. The, the fact that you're calling this a nefarious act, I was just sort of seeing it more of, as a moment of self-preservation. Like she separated herself from anything that could entangle her, and she went out and she she got away from her captors, essentially. Yeah. Um, huh. It's funny that we both interpret the ending of that slightly differently. See, I'm thinking more like, not so much, you don't have to be a surprise or a twist. It doesn't need to be like a Shyamalan twist. It just needs to be something where, in my mind, when I say take chances, I'm talking about like the audience doesn't have to feel comfortable at the end of their story, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking of a movie like Sicario, uh, which wasn't you know all that super original, but it was just different in its execution and its characterization of the main players. What about so something I- like Inception from a few years ago? Inception would be okay. Well, yeah, the, I mean, like, the only. Oh, sorry, Andrew. It's not to say that, that that they don't take any chances ever, but certainly the the percentage goes down. Actually, what, what I was thinking about this is, I think as the studios have coalesced bigger and bigger, 
and you've gotten rid of more and more of the smaller, more experimental ones. I mean, stuff like Miramax and stuff, which it's that kind of stuff is still out there, but it's part of much bigger corporations now. Mm-hmm. So they get, they, they're under the umbrella of a larger, and those studios, by the way, are owned by even bigger, you know, conglomerates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Brookheimer Films is another one. Right. So as that is as that has happened. I think the studios are taking less and less risks. But interestingly, you know, television, I think, has taken more and more risks as more and more channels have begin, begun to develop their own unique content. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, back way back in the day, obviously, it was, it was ABC, CBS, NBC, right? And those were the three. And, you know, they definitely did some, some stuff, some interesting stuff. But that was you know, the early days when, you know, you had to... What are the boundaries? You know, you're, you're kind of just seeing what's out there. And then, you know, Fox came along and probably like when we were kids up until probably, you know, college age, I don't really see TV as having taken a whole lot of risks in our kind of earlier lifetime. I would say I say you're right with maybe one asterisk next to Fox from from the from the late '80s up until maybe late '90s. No, no. When when Fox first came around, Fox took risks, but then yeah. Fox got got comfortable, just like the the other the other. Uh, sure, ones. I totally agree with that. But then when you know, then you know, probably in the last five to ten years, as chan- you know, sh- channels like AMC and mm-hmm. HBO have all started mm-hmm. making their own content and not just replaying someone else's content. They've had to experiment to try and catch people's imagination and grab their share of the market. Whereas the big Hollywood studios, their their way of getting more of the market is to physically acquire other stu- other par- portions of the market, other studios yep, that, that have a part of the market. That's a really good point. Um, and then now you also have places like Netflix and Hulu who are producing their own shows. And because they don't have advertisers, they can be more edgy. They can take more risks. They can be more experimental. And I think that's also pushing regular cable television. Because cable television at one time, I remember my mom being like, oh, cable television as opposed to network television. Or or um, whatever the main ones are. Um, she And it, for her, it was a big divide. I mean, we weren't allowed to watch cable, but it, you know, maybe some of the things on regular TV might be okay because she saw cable TV as being more experimental with MTV. It was uh, pretty big at the time. VHS now, um, BET. VH1. Uh, VH1. There you go. Sorry. Yeah, but don't forget. VHS is a, is a, I want to, I want to just don't forget uh, uh, as far as cable is concerned, uh, as part of my childhood, uh, USA network. I don't know. if you Oh, the USA up. network. Yes. USA network. Like I used to watch silk stockings, La Femme Nikita, and Duckman fairly regularly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what pop made them pop. Oh no, I know why. Someone on on, on Facebook was like, uh, "If you didn't think such and such a uh, Highlander was the best show in the '90s, you don't know what you're talking about." And then I was like, uh, "Excuse me, what about Walker, Texas Ranger, or La Femme Nikita, or Silk Stockings, or Duckman?" And I was like, "Oh my God, these are all USA shows." Right. That's hilarious. And now USA is just really crime dramas. That's it. Yeah. That's it's it's funny because USA has actually moved away from looks like it moved away from putting out a lot of their own stuff, and now it's just reruns of of uh, NCIS or Law and Order or Law and Order. Yeah, I want to pivot back to like when Andrew talked about like the old days. I'm like old old days. 
and this is how I'll tell you how this relates to cinema. And I've had this conversation before with uh, one of our film professors. Uh, in the 50s, when television was really hitting its first stride, uh, the studio system was terrified of television, that, that no one was going to go to the movies anymore. And it, it essentially kind of played a part in breaking the studio system. And the studio system is essentially the producers and the executive producers lording over how films were made. Everyone was signed up for contracts, and it was like a factory system for making movies. Yeah, we you, told you how to work. If you ever saw the, the Coen Brother film, Hail Caesar, that's, I mean, it's a comedy, but yeah. that's, that's the studio system. Yeah, that's absolutely it. Great point. Uh, and then you think about taking chances. Yeah, I mean, you, back then you didn't want to offend anyone, but you think there was also shows like The Twilight Zone, which are incredibly unconventional in their storytelling methods. Highly ironic, not twist endings, but also not soft and fuzzy. Some and of them are I, really creepy. Even now, I'll watch. Them oh, absolutely. Go, no, and and they still and that was kind of like what I've talked about in general is that I feel like we've lost in cinema, or in just in general in in our modern storytelling is that kind of irony and and dark twist. But when when we move up through the years. I think you guys hit it, you're right, and I want to amplify that television definitely had to, or now like the online providers, have to give you a product that will catch your attention because they want you to sit down and watch eight hours of their product. Uh, well, but the only thing that I would say to kind of counter that point a little bit is that I think with television shows, especially shows that are on any kind of regular advertising schedule, so not Netflix, not Hulu, well, I guess Hulu, if you don't pay for the premium one, they also open them because they're a series and then they expect to take a break and then they do another series or another season. They open themselves up to being malleable by the fans. And I've seen this negatively affect shows like Sherlock, which were fantastic at the beginning. It was very, for me, it was a non-emotional crime drama with some, a little bit of sarcasm, a little bit of wit. I love British accents, so there's a little bit of that in there. And it has to do with one of my favorite characters. It's a, a really well-done modernization of the, the original tale. And then all of a sudden, you hit season three. So at this point, I think it's been five years since the original series came out, or the original season came out, because British television does things wonkily. And... You can tell that all the fans have said that they want to know more about Sherlock's personal life, and so all or or John his uh, his companion's personal life, and so all of a sudden you have this other character, and we're getting into people sitting in each other's parlors and crying at how f much they love each other and and what they've put each other through or something, and I'm going, wait, this is not why I'm watching this show. And I think right. it actually negatively affected it because it takes so, you know, it's they expect you not just the first eight hours like you were saying, but also give us a little bit of a break and then we're going to do another eight hours and then we're going to take yes, a break. But, all, but, all the, but, like, like you mentioned, that's British television and British television follows a very different schedule. But I know. also, just because just I want to tell you how this gets into modern, I want to set the fan thing aside for a second because I don't think you're entirely wrong there. The fans do play a role in this and I've always had this theory that fans need to shut up. But... Today, what I was trying to do is show you that there, there is kind of a mirror between today and the 1950s. Whereas I think the studios are really frightened of, of television today, more than ever. Because now, uh, ticket prices are really high. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to get people into the theaters. We were talking ahead of time, and we'll, we'll post at least this one website we found where ticket sales are going down as box office numbers go up. Um, fewer and fewer people are putting their butts in the in the seats, and 
part of the problem is to me is these films have gotten so expensive it is very high risk and somewhat media mediocre reward whereas television in in all its forms today fairly low risk and high reward and with with, with cinema i don't think they want to take chances anymore because you know a bad word of mouth is basically the death knell of a a major tentpole film and 2016 and 2016 has seen the death of a bunch of tentpole films that that were hundreds of millions of dollars and really we have to think about it like this this is the way i think about it and I've, i've i've posited this to a few people and then we can pivot back to the fans if you want uh You've got people in studios basically guessing on hundreds of millions of dollars. They are guessing that people are going to go see these movies based on no kind of real science. I know, I know uh, Max Landis likes to talk about the metrics that are, that, that are magic, and they fail most of the time. And it's like they, they we're betting hundreds of millions of dollars. And I, I, I well, because there's, this, isn't a, something that, this isn't something that should be built on a metric at all. This is art. Art is not a metric. Well, no, that, art, I mean, art's not a metric, but at the same time, you're talking this kind of money. You obviously marketing want, is well. You obviously also want to have a return for your investment. Uh, the one thing I was going to say to Dean's point, you're talking about, you know, um, oh, I can't remember what you were, exactly what you're saying here. <laughs> no, it's not really. Well, I was tra- I was I was paralleling I was paralleling what you you brought up the early '50s when you had the big three. I think we're in that kind of parallel mode. Oh no! Is, is the studios are afraid now? I, so I, yeah, you're talking about you're talking about them being being afraid. I also think that t- the television model of doing things lends itself to being able to take risks. Right? Movies are one and done. Right? Yes. Whereas the pilot system for television shows, I think, allows you to take a bigger risk. Right? You do a pilot, pilot gets picked up or it doesn't, and then you've got you know half a season or so and you can make adjustments as you go so and i was just thinking about this during the week right uh the west wing right one of my favorite shows won four consecutive emmys and if you look at the reviews from the first episode from the pilot they're about 50 50 mm-hmm. right so obviously you know, obviously this was an exceptionally successful show and I don't know about groundbreaking, but it was certainly it was certainly a bit of a different show at this at the time as well, right? And you know, but if that were a movie, fifty fifty, you're you're probably not doing well. Yeah, well, it's funny. It's funny you bring up the Emmys because just I think last night I watched a video from uh, Adam ruins everything on I love how. Him. Yeah, I, I like him too. I've seen him in a couple of interviews. I've never watched the show, but I've I've seen interviews of him. And uh, he did. I watched this bit. It was somewhere floating around online of uh, how awards just don't mean anything. Like quality doesn't mean anything. It's how much money you spend campaigning for an award, and then they play the clip where Denzel Washington wins a Golden Globe and admits he sh- he smoozed it. <laughs> like, yeah, we just kind of like you know. We had took pictures with everyone. We had cocktails with everyone. We signed a bunch of autographs. I won that year. <laughs> like, he said no, that and, from the stage. Yeah. And, and I absolutely agree. I just, that... I just thought it wasn't a counterpoint. It was just something I thought right. you know, when you mentioned Emmys, it was like that's funny. Yeah. Well, I was going to say with your to your point, Andrew. Although that is a hilarious story, dude. The Amazon model is changing slightly with that too, where they'll post a pilot online and they'll let their 
Prime members watch it for free and then vote on it and decide whether they want it to see more of that or not, which is kind of a cool thing, I think. Uh, I don't know that they fan. do that with every. I don't know that they do that with every pilot, but they do no, that with some. Let's go to the fan thing because I think the fans, the fan stuff is really interesting. I, I have crowdsourcing is terrible. No, it is well, terrible, but in that well, case, I think it's I good because have... then they can share it with their friends and say, "Hey, I like this. I think I know for a fact that you, Andrew, are going to like this too. You go vote on it too, and maybe we'll get this made." Right. So, so there, there there's merits. I am a fan of, of, of the general idea of crowdsourcing and spontaneous order. I do like it. But I have always been of the opinion, I don't know if I'm record on this podcast saying it, but I know I said it to a bunch of people. There are times fan needs to shut the hell up. The fans need to shut up and let the professionals who do this daily do their job. And And sometimes it's great when fans try and save a television series and bring it back to life. Uh, can't think of one off the top of my head. Didn't they do that to Veronica Mars? Star Trek. The original Star, Star Trek. Trek. The original Star Trek. So, great. That works. Sometimes they bring it back. Jericho and it didn't work so well. Yeah, it sucks. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I, that, I mean, that, 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 that's a discussion from you and I about ten years ago. Yeah. Ooh, saving a bus full of children. Really? So, giving the fans too much control, I, I do think, is, is a double-edged sword. And this is why, partially why I think some shows don't take chances. Is because... I don't know if the fans want people to take chances anymore. And I think a great example of this, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, is season six of Game of Thrones. I, I, I really do think that season six was vastly different in its model, its storytelling model, than was the first five seasons. Yes, that's true, but we had also passed the book, so there was no longer any source material. There is almost no input from George R. R. Martin. So his right. writing style, you can tell, is different. So I'm not sure. I, I, no, I think no, that you're that, right that makes... in part, but I think that that also affected it. No, of course it affected, but that kind of makes my point, though. When we had source material from a single writer who was writing a novel that did not have interference from the fans, didn't have that large of a fan base, he could just do his thing because he was trying to tell this story. It was the model of one mind. Once we got away from the source material, and after all the outrage from season five, which I just, I can't prove it, but I believe had an effect on season six. Oh, I'm I sure. Felt, I felt that you could see the difference because sometimes fans don't want to be challenged and don't want to have that uncomfortable feeling. And it just that's just, I saw it as proof was in the pudding or something like that. But I, I don't know if I go that far. I think, at least with Game of Thrones, I think the story, the storytelling has gradually changed over five seasons. I mean, the, you know, the storytelling in the books changes drastically from book one to book five. And I don't, I don't think we got that severe a change, but I think we got a, a percentage of that change. And I think when we went, we went to something different. It was. It just showed. It showed more dramatically in comparison to season five, season six. I don't know that it's, it's necessarily fan driven. Let me let me maybe put a finer point on what I was trying to say. Um, I was specifically. I should have said this to start talking about how fans reacted to character deaths. Right. The, the overall storytelling method wasn't so bad, or never really changed. But like. I'm talking about when a character bit the dust and you had these kind of fan outrages or when a character got beat up, you have these kind of fan conniption fits. I think that definitely had an effect on 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 storytelling. 
and how they told that story. That's really what I was getting at. Yeah, so you were expecting more character deaths in season six and didn't really get them. Uh, was I expecting it? Actually, no. But but I was disappointed I didn't get it. Uh, but that that was my my main point. And I think this might happen in other shows. I can't think. I that's the thing is I really don't watch a lot of TV. But I always stuck with cinema. But now I'm at this crossroads where I'm getting tired of cinema. I'm like maybe I should try TV. Yeah, I think when it comes to Game of Thrones, though, we're, we're because we're reaching the end, right? We've 15 more episodes left, right? I think we've, we're at a point where you're going to see a significantly diminished number of character deaths only because not that, not that like, you know, we can't just kill off the entire universe at the end of the show. That's certainly st- physically possible. Uh, and George R. R. Martin is enough of an asshat to do it. I'm rooting for the wit for the Night's King. I really hope he does that. I, uh, I want, I want a reservoir dogs ending style. I want a reservoir dogs ending for Game of Thrones. That's what I want. Right, but I think my my point is, you know, obviously we still need to have characters for the next fifteen episodes over the over the course of two seasons. And I think if we st- if you kill off characters and just introduce new ones, I mean we've seen that in other shows where you know they'll kill off a character and in the last you know and bring someone in as a quote-unquote either a straight-up replacement or you know someone to fill that kind of spot you know they people lose interest in the show because they've lost interest in the characters oh oh there's no doubt that that's kind of like my my point here is is in a television show when you replace like the lead of a show uh you know it's very dicey you know think about uh swapping out characters in csi you know, how, how they mm-hmm. get a huge drop yep. off. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. But I, I think that's it partially kind of goes to my point is how fans will just disengage if they don't see their their man on the show anymore. Yeah, or, but, rather yeah. than... Isn't, isn't that, isn't that kind of your, your market principles there, though? If what? In terms of, you know, kind of the idea of supply and demand. No, absolutely. As again, um, I think the problems with not necessarily the people providing the supply, it's, it's who's... It's what people are demanding, right? I but think I, I also have problem. to say, just on as as a caveat to this, that has is is more tangential. It, I think that TV shows go on for too long. I think your average person walks in and well, pitches no about three seasons of a show. Here's the arc, and you can feel it when you watch a show that's about five or six seasons long. You can feel the end of the first story arc, and it's usually either after the end of season three or season four, and then they have to create this open-ended ending in case they they are allowed to make the next season and then all of a sudden you can literally see this and the the most beautiful example of this is supernatural which is a shitty show and i watch it for the hot guys um but you can see the break at season four and then all of a sudden every season it has to be a bigger baddie like bigger and meaner and nastier and then they sort of run out of people i mean at one point we've got the devil like satan himself and the archangel Michael, and then that wasn't enough. So then they just brought in Leviathans, which technically, on the scale of biblical bad guys, are way lower than Satan. What about Mecca Somehow they were worse. Mecca <laughs> No, we have not had any. <laughs> we have not had that problem. But I'm like, wow, that's, I haven't. Oh, that's a that's a way throwback to Adventure Brothers. Holy Christ! <laughs> We've been we're, Donnell and I are binge watching that right now. I didn't realize they had season six was this year. That's how bad I've been. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say I think the issue with that with Tracy, though, is TV shows have become more arranged around 
large season size overarching s- plots. And I yeah, think that's like annoying too. when when stuff was when you have stuff that's more episodic like uh Star Trek the Next Generation is exceptionally episodic. There's yeah. almost there's almost no overarching storylines. No, Even Farscape as a is a lot uh, is pretty episodic at least in the first season. Towards the end that changed. Yeah. Yeah, that it did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So when you've got a show that's a lot more episodic like that, I think the show can go longer because you you know, you don't start running out of those large plots. You don't have to one up the ante from Mhm. And last the original time. CSI was pretty episodic for a long time. It wasn't until oh, yeah. sort of after season 6 or 7 that it yeah. d- finally started you started learn and again, here again, I think maybe that's a, my actual problem is I see it as, okay, suddenly we're delving into the character's personal life, which I don't give a shit about. But maybe it is just that it becomes this story arc that's kind of poorly done, and I just don't that's, like that. That's well, season three of every season of Star Trek. We're going to do, we're gonna do uh, character-focused episodes. Either yeah. it goes really well or it goes really poorly. No, I, I think Tracy's primary point uh, about American television shows going on too long is is absolutely spot on. I mean, any show, it doesn't matter if it's a crime procedural, because usually what starts to happen is the actors get tired of doing this. Well, in NCIS, which used to be one of my favorite shows, just did this with uh, Tony Dinozo. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, Michael, Michael Weatherly, I think. Um, th- that show has been going on for 12 freaking years. 12 years. 12 years. That is dumb. No, that is no, dumb. it absolutely is dumb. I mean, I, I'm my, my main... First show that popped to my mind was The Office. I thought you were going to say The Simpsons. Oh my god, yes. I thought you were say The Simpsons. Well, I mean, The Simpsons, definitely. But you think of uh, a show like The Office, where it was based on a British television show, and British TV doesn't last very long. No. Nope. Three or and four then, seasons. And, and then it's like, but what, by the time Pam had her second kid, I'm, I'm not watching this anymore. Well, and then at one point, at, or at least the last two seasons didn't even have um, Michael Scott anymore. Right. It was just yeah, completely gone. I got sick of it. The Simpsons are a great example of a show that's just lost its edge. However, I do want to point out, starting this month and almost in about 11 days as of this recording, South Park's 20th season is going to premiere. Holy shit. And here's a show that somehow has maintained its relevance over a very long time. And last season, uh, it it probably had its most relevant uh, season in, in, in several years. I don't know that it's maintained relevancy as it has come and gone. It's lost it, it's come back, it's lost it, it's come back. Whereas I think The Simpsons had it for a very long time, like probably, realistically, probably 12 seasons, right? Everyone says the first 10 seasons are the, are the good ones, but... Yeah, 1997 prob- is where they start falling off. Yeah, it probably held on for good for, for about 12 seasons and then fell off. Whereas South Park, I think, has been more, more, of, a, more of a roller coaster, right? There's been... Sometimes, like, those first several seasons were really good. I mean, I, I kind of fell off for a long time. You know, the, well, you, said the, you said the last one was really, really relevant. You know, there were some other... Well, they, they, well, that's the thing is they've always kept it fresh, right? They've always kept it in... Because of the way they do it, they can take on uh, the, the week's topics, literally. If they want to take on a topic that's in the news that week, they can take it on. Yes. And I think that's gone a long way in keeping them relevant because uh, they're always contemporary. Yes. Right? You may not, They may have quality issues where they'll fall on and off. You're like, okay, this season wasn't as good as, as the last season. 
But I've never felt where I'm like, wow, this was really, this was not good, right? You'll have an episode here or there where you're like, this was just not good. But I've never felt that. Personally, as a fan who's stuck with it for a while, you know, I've never felt like, okay, this season is garbage, right? I can think of a couple episodes where, like, you know, the, the Cthulhu episode, or the Imagination Land episodes, or the, the heavy metal episode, you're like, oh my god, these are brilliant. And then you go, all right, these other episodes were inside. Good, they were funny, but they weren't great. I, I just, I'm impressed with their ability to keep themselves in the game and still have quality. I think that's my main point. Is they've, they're the rare exceptions. They, their quality is still good. The quality of their comedy is still... Awesome. I'm still in shock that they've been around for 20 years. I know. That's ridiculous. Because really, I always think of them as the, the newer one, right? Like, The Simpsons is the long-running one, and then sure, South Park is the new one. I mean, but it's not new. South... Yeah, compared to The Simpsons, yes. I think, maybe, I think South Park premiered when we were in, what, fifth or sixth grade? Yeah, yeah. something like that. We were as, definitely as an, not as, allowed to watch as that. An actual, <laughs> as an actual show, as compared to the, the, the one-off Christmas thing that got the whole thing started. Right, which is something they did in, like, college. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that was like 90s, 90s. Yeah, 96 or 97 Yeah, is when they did it. And that's like, that's really funny because South Park appears when Simpsons kind of hit their apex. Yeah. But so let's I want to pivot a little bit out of this because we talked about uh, offline uh, heroes and villains. And I want to I want to throw I'm, we may have brought this up in the in, in whatever time we've got remaining. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the in the Hellblazer episode. So I don't know how far we want to go with this. The the villains becoming more and more ambiguous and the heroes becoming less and less, more and more heroic. So this is to say uh, ambiguous villains and non-ambiguous heroes. Right. Do we have any thoughts on that one? Because I, I have fairly strong thoughts on it, but I was curious if right. you so, so felt this like, way. Yeah, like you said, we mentioned this in the Hellblazer episode uh, just briefly, and I'm, I, we, I we're bringing this back up because I heard a, an NPR piece earlier in the week we're talking about, you know, where did TV's villains go when they're talking about monsters and antiheroes? And, and basically their point is, you know, for a long time, you know, Hollywood or not Hollywood, but, um, you know, TV basically was trying to make. TV is Hollywood, too. You can uh, say yeah, that. no, that's true. They, they were basically making villains more and more sympathetic, right? You could, they, they want you to understand their motives and they're human too. They're fallible, you know. And that the NPR's article was was pointing to some some interesting ones when they're talking about kind of pure villains. Uh, specifically, they, they pointed to Dynasty, which I just kind of went, "What?" <laughs> yeah, no, not exactly but, in our demographic wheelhouse here. Yeah, Dynasty, and then and well, and then they actually did go with one, and they were talking about kind of the comeback of the true villain. And they pointed to Cersei Lannister. No. And, no. And, yeah, and I'm going. I'm going. You're on the right track, but let's go. Let's, let, let's go with yeah. Let's go with with uh, with Reese Bolton. Or yeah, with, how uh, do you Ramsey miss Bolton. My, my, my boy Ramsey. Yeah, let's go with like, I was like <laughs> boy. I mean, you're like you're on the right track with the right show, but but that I mean Cersei. You know they do a lot to try and humanize Cersei, as opposed to Ramsey, who just Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah you know sam harris has a book uh i think it's the same guy that you were referencing dude um he's a psychologist psychiatrist whatever. A, he's a no he's a philosopher philosopher and neuroscientist name the book and go. i'll tell you if there it's you go him. yeah because um, it's either him or the country music star right those are the only two sam harris's out there i know it's probably not the country the music the star book? 
Yeah. It's um, it's a so book have, about free will. Oh yeah, free will. I have it. Yeah. Okay. That um, book so, fucked my life up so nice when I read yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just one of I'm not going to follow his train of thought in that, but I'm going to pull a teeny snippet out of it and use it. And that is when he was discussing the criminal justice system and how it needs to be completely revamped because, and he was talking about the sliding scale of how we look at a pedophile, right? So you hear about this guy, he does stuff to little boys and everybody goes, we hate him. He needs to die. And then it comes out that he himself has been, you know, molested as a child. There you go. Um, He's been molested as a child and, so, you know, he's, he, he was molested for like 15 years or, or what have you. And they're like, well, he still needs to die, but we can see where he's coming from. And he just sort of goes through these lists of things that can be added to that pedophile story. And slowly it humanizes him in the public mind. And I thought, huh, I don't do that. So I guess I just really want a, a villain that enjoys being a villain. That there's yeah, I mean, no backstory. I don't really give a shit what you what happened to you as a kid. Don't be an asshole. Or be, right, or be right. an asshole. Right, but be an asshole, but don't expect me to like you. Right. So, oh, where is I? I'm, pull, I'm trying to pull it up here. I have it somewhere. This book is so tiny, and like you could just blast right over it without noticing it. Yeah, I think I, I remember the example he was giving. He's talking about the guy who was shooting people in. Uh, uh, oh, here we go. Moral responsibility. Yeah, so he, he has the, he has this list of five points in on, on the chapter of moral responsibility, page 49. Starts on 49, ends on 50, for those who are interested. Really interesting. He's got to, I'll find you the um, his video lecture he did a couple of years ago on this. He's done a couple, oh, but it's really, it's really good. So more to the point. So I, I'm, I'm up on this, like, I do love the ultra-evil, non-ambiguous villain, right? And I do love the, the, the ambiguous villain. And I've always said... That the villain's motivations need to make sense. That's always been my problem with like Bond films. Is like when you find out what their motivation for doing something is, you're like, oh, stop it! You you are not <laughs> you are not going to create a freaking moon base because you want to like hack people's business accounts. Shut up, right? That's that stuff gets silly. <laughs> Die Hard was uh, uh, the, the the not the latest Die Hard, but when they brought it back with um, Justin Long. Oh, I thought, say, I thought you were going to say I thought you the first one. I was like, oh come on, Hans Gruber was good. No, no, the, the, the other one, the live free or die hard, where you're like, oh yeah, shut up, yeah, shut up. You, you don't. It was fun, but the, shut uh, up. the uh, kid from the Apple commercials. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's good. All I fucking know him from. But see, like, with Game of Thrones is a great. We're going back to it because it, the shades of gray are fantastic. Where Cersei's bad, but she's rational and it makes sense, and that's what I think bothers people. Then you've got a character like Jamie, and when Jamie, like, you know, sorta did or sorta didn't rape. Cersei on on the on the altar of her their dead son's like funeral pyre, you know I remember that the moral ambiguity of that pissing people off because the fans had chosen Jamie as oh he's a good guy now he wouldn't do that. That yeah. that's what I'm getting at. So ambiguous villains, not ambiguous. I think we've got villains pretty well done. Villains are the most fun to work with. I'm talking about like heroes. I want to see a hero where you go oh he's a good guy, but that was that was effed up. You did something effed up that, that challenges me, and I just feel fans are in part, this is the overarching theme, is fans fans are in part to blame for this. Right, they, but don't, I also think, they don't want to accept someone who's good, but it's kind of still kind of a dick about it. Not even good, but maybe we'll have moral failings at times. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll do something truly wrong, 
to achieve an end, even if it's a good end, sometimes we'll do something that's just wrong because he's wrong. Well, you are, this kind of goes back to your original point that this is actually better done in television than it is in the movies, because I, I keep thinking about, so I stopped watching Criminal Minds recently, but Shamar Moore's character, Derek Morgan, and there were a couple of female characters on it various times as well that would, I mean, a couple of them shot a guy. One girl had been um, the main guy in, in the bad guy in that particular episode had attempted to rape her. And so towards the end, she has him in a corner. There's no one really around. She shoots him in the head twice. Derek Morgan comes running around the corner. He sees what has just happened and is like, what the fuck, woman? But she's still the good guy. She's still the protagonist. And then you're sort of left like, are you still a good guy if you can do some effed up stuff? The other thing that I often see, and this is actually in MTV just did a an adaptation of Terry Brooks's sort of Shannara books called The Shannara yeah. Chronicles. Watch a I, little bit of that. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It's teenage no. angsty MTV crap, but and and they have a little too much current pop music in it, but eh, whatever. It's it's decent. I binge the whole thing. It's done. Yeah. So John Reese Davies. John Reese. I I love him. He's great. So did you, you see often, him like he's gonna die? He is way too old. There's no. Well, I just figured old. his contract was only one season, so that's how I guess. Well, I just looked at it and was like, he is too old because everyone in this show is way too young and hot, and you should not be alive. Yeah, they're ridiculously hot, aren't they? And now I've completely forgotten what my point was in that. But I'm sorry. it's decent show. No, I, I, I think I remember what you were trying to get at, and that was we were talking about. Uh, oh shit, I don't even know what you. Was. Andrew, are you paying attention? Uh, no, but I do have a point to make. <laughs> okay. No, I was you were talking about uh, characters doing fucked up stuff. There was something in the first season of Daredevil when they've got um, uh, Daredevil, uh, the secretary. I'm drawing her name, blanking her name, last name of Page. I can't think of her name. Karen, Karen, Karen Page, yeah. right? She straight up fucking shoot. She, the guy like gives her the gun. and He's like, "Oh, you won't do it," and she fucking shoots him twice. Yep. Just and she like, has some thoughts about it later, but she right. did it. Yeah, there were. Yeah, and I think you know, in general. A morally ambiguous heroes can be Jessica fun. Jessica Jones too. I, maybe that's a Netflix thing because Jessica Jones is a ridiculously morally ambiguous. Well, well, I was thinking Punisher. I mean, Punisher yeah. is probably the apex amongst them. Is this is go. a guy who, you know, he has a code. I think it's the justification behind what a character is doing. Right. Right. If we could justify what the hero did, even though it might be, you know, we would feel it's wrong. If they're justified in doing it, then then we'll let it slide. I'm talking about like really taking a chance and going, I don't think this person is justified in doing it. They either did it for their own personal gain or because they just enjoyed it. And like that, that like that's what villains do, right? They do it for their gain or they, cause they just, they like True. slicing people up heroes. You know, they, they, they have to have this code. Uh, but I, I would just like to see that, that challenge where the hero does something. And you go, well, there was no justification for that. He just did it or she just did it because they wanted to. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't fit your code. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, you see a lot of this in in relationships with kids suddenly discovering that their parents and this happens in media a whole lot. Kids suddenly discover that their parents are not perfectly righteous. You know? <laughs> you used to think, you were that David Tell joke. You used to think your dad was Superman, then you just realized he was a drunk wearing a cape. <laughs> well, kind of like that or or uh, that what was the name of the the Bowery Boys, that comic that we interviewed the the writer for yes, Cor a few uh, months Cor ago? Levine, yep. Yep. Remember when the kid discovered that his dad had actually been taking money from the union fund? Yep. <laughs> and suddenly 
he has to come to grips with the fact that his his father is not holy. His father is not righteous. His father is not just. Not in everything. But he also does very good things. He runs the union to make sure that these guys don't get completely taken advantage of. Yeah, I'd like to see a little... But, but they... T- in media, typically, no, not in that case, but in typically, what you'll see is then all of a sudden, the character, and therefore the audience, because the character is usually standing in for the audience's observation, will take a hard left turn and say, okay, well, clearly you're not a good guy. I can't trust you at all anymore, ever. And Agreed. I think that's not correct. I was also thinking... Wait, what's, wait, what's not correct? I'm sorry. I lost it, that's not that, That's not how most people actually do respond to that revelation that their friend uh, or their coworker yes. or whatever does the occasional thing that is sim- simply for self-gain and isn't really right. We rationalize it. Yeah, yeah we, we do. We're like, well, but they're so nice in other ways. We don't usually take that hard turn that an audience will take when they're watching it. I was thinking of my, uh, my role-playing group. You know, obviously these guys are supposed to be the heroes. And then one of them just straight up starts torturing a dude with a cattle prod. <laughs> Who is that? It was a bad week. I'm, I'm just, just I'm gonna I'm not I'm not gonna put out names. It was a bad week for the player, and he just like cattle prod tortured the shit out of a prisoner. But see, that's the kind of shit we should see in in our in our in our popular media is that you know heroes can have bad days and just make these these huge fallings. I just I'm just more amazed that in a galaxy far far away in a time long long ago you still have cattle procs. Yeah, I think I I do actually think at one point the question of do I know how to waterboard came up. <laughs> it's like, it's like mm, no. <laughs> oh boy, like, this is gonna get darker than I wanted it to. So no. Should have let him roll for it. Natural <laughs> twenty. Otherwise, you don't know what you're doing. Otherwise, you forget why you're there and you move on. Ooh, good one. Nice. I don't know. Oh, Donnell's got me working uh, on a D and D character. Uh, I'm going to be a necromancer, and she's like, "Do you know how you want to play it?" And I was like, "Yeah, we've just been watching Venture Brothers for the last week. I know exactly how I want to play my necromancer." <laughs> oh, I think I think that that was a. a that was a great point, Tracy, and I and I, I say that because I don't remember what it was, so I can't tell you you're wrong. Not uh, <laughs> really. Not really. I think that I think that brings. How, how are we doing on time? Because I think uh, I think yeah. we've covered we've uh, covered we, everything we want. Yeah, I think we can go ahead and wrap up here. All right. So, who wants to start with what we're into? I'll, 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 I'll go, go ahead, Andrew. I'll go. So, uh, since I lost power for about twelve hours today, I have, but, but certainly by the time this podcast actually airs. I will have finished David Hyju's The Ten Cent Plague, mm. which is a uh, history of censorship in comic books. I just got through the part where they're talking about the uh, Senate hearings, mm. which was just a bloody mess. <laughs> mm. uh, that was really interesting. That's, that's been very interesting. It's was, was a book I've wanted to, f- to, to read and then lately just wanted to finish for quite a while. Um, interesting fact I learned is that the comic book hearings concluded on the same day that McCarthy started his hearings into the army mm. and basically the David Hygie makes makes the the point that you know the, the comic book scare basically took off like a rocket after the hearings and the army hearings was basically where McCarthy where McCarthy came apart at the wheels yeah, that's where he met his end. Yeah, and within that was the "Have you no decency, sir?" Right, yeah. that was that that was that grand With, moment. Within a year, McCarthy's career is basically over, and 
a significant portion of comic book publishers have been closed. Yeah. Just so just the, the, the diverging points literally for, starting from the same day. Yeah, yeah, almost wow. like a mirror image of each other. Yeah. So, and then I've been trying to uh, catch up on, on my backlog of comics. The, the the latest issue of Saga came out, so that was a nice little treat. Hmm. Tracy, how about you? Well, I binge-watched all of the Shannara Chronicles last night. So, and this is because I started watching a really cool show. Netflix has gotten really good at knowing my tastes. For a really long time, they had no clue what to offer me, and so they kept offering me, like, really just stuff I wasn't interested in at all. And then all of a sudden, the list of suggestions has been, like, every single one is my taste. So it's, my binge-watching has gone insane. You know what might, um, so have, was, hang on, you know what might have affected that? The fact that you were you were bumming off of my account. That may have be. had something to do with it. Although I had my own profile. Yeah, although for like for like six months after my sister borrowed my my account, like my recommendations were all fucked up. Oh, okay. Well, and also I think that Netflix is not able to get quite as many American shows, so they're giving me a whole lot of British sci-fi, which is awesome. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. Uh, so there's a British television version of Jonathan Strange and Doctor Norrell which is about bringing magic back to England for, uh, in the it's sort of Victorian era-ish. It's it's really fun. So I got through three episodes like, of like, it. Like magic magic or like, like ooh, magic? No, actual magic. Like as, as though they're trying to make magic respectable. So they're sort of taking magic and making and plopping it into the middle of Victorian gentlemanly behavior. It's really awesome. Actually, oh, okay. I think so it's, it's, like actually I think it's actually performing magic. Thing, right. It, well... Yes, it's more about the politics. If if there were magic, how would it work in oh, a political sense? That's what I was getting at. I was like, in, I thought you were talking about like like perform art performance art magic, like card tricks. No. Or, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. No. Woo, woo, now I was like, wow, I got magic. Real, yeah, I got really interested. And I was like, never. Sorry, mind. nope, fantasy magic. So I I get through three episodes of it. Really great show. Really enjoying the characters, and suddenly realize that it's based on a book. So I came to a screeching halt, even though I really love the show, and I ordered the book immediately on thriftbooks.com, which is my favorite place. And then, of course, while I was on there, I ordered six other books, which will all be here next week. Mm. So, because trying to sort of hold off from watching any more of that until I read the book, I then switched over to the Shannara Chronicles, which I again very angsty and had a lot of like stupid shitty current pop. I'm sorry for anyone that loves current pop, but like We Can Be Heroes is a stupid song. It's a dumb song, and I hate that it's, also, it's in that it's show. It's also not like current. We We Can Be Heroes was like from Godzilla, like no. 1998. Yeah, but this is remember that this this season just hit Netflix. So like, it's was already Bowie, over. Wasn't that a Bowie song or something? No, no, no. no. We can be heroes. That's a current something. Oh, shitty. No, you, you're, think, you're thinking David Bowie's Heroes, which is then covered by the Wallflowers. Okay. Yeah, this is it's slightly different. Anyways, whatever. So the other thing that I discovered. So I'm also I'm reading the current issue of Foreign Policy, which I know you guys don't care about, but my boss has a subscription and he paid the extra $4 or whatever to get the digital version as well as the paper version. So he just reads it on his iPad and he gives me all the paper copies, which is amazing. Oh, that's pretty cool. And Andrew has also been getting me into a D&D group. So I've been reading the D&D Player's Handbook and trying to create a backstory for my character. And then the last thing that I've been doing is I found this amazing... It's called Obsessed with Star Trek. I bought this like four years ago, I think, at Barnes & Noble's on clearance. 
and it's it's actually supposed to be a game. It has like a little talking thing at the bottom. It says "Try Me," and you can. It's supposed to give you the answers to these multiple choice questions. And what I've discovered when I originally bought this book, and now I'm about to rediscover, is that I don't actually need the answers to these questions. I just ask Andrew. Well, let's let's hear a question. I want to see if I can do it. All right. And Andrew, so Andrew will be our fact checker. I'll go with a, a fairly easy one to start. I think. I think this is easy. I don't know Star Trek all that well. What is the dominant life form on the planet Phylos? Okay, ob- obviously, it is the the green tentacle chicks from the last hentai I watched. That's that's the answer. But do you want the do you want the multiple choice? Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, A is Vulcans. B is intelligent clones. C is intelligent plant life. And D is intelligent marine life. Well, obviously it's plant life because it's tentacle porn. <laughs> What's the answer? I, the I have answer, no Andrew? idea. I'm asking Andrew. I'm not asking Andrew, you. You know you don't know it. I want to say plant life, but yeah, I don't actually know that one. Mm, that's no, a good question. Making, I'll put the answer in the show notes. Not making I don't Tracy know. look bad. <laughs> She's like, I would say uh-huh. I don't have this ready. What? Well, it's definitely tentacle porn. So anything this else? Is, this is from the Five Year Mission, which it looks like yeah. might have been an animated. Mm-hmm series possibly maybe uh the, okay. other, yeah, the other thing i was i forgot to mention and tracy also we've been playing the ever-loving shit out of con man the game oh my god yes mm. yes con, so con man series the series where we got to interview pj harzma the producer a few months ago well actually gosh almost over a year ago now uh they have finally released a mobile game and it is freaking awesome i'm having a great day well it's mostly awesome except when there are four alien invasions three sets of cockroaches and a couple of naked grannies running by all at the same time that's kind of annoying. I'm all about naked grannies i know you are that's why i mentioned it yeah yeah it's funny you mentioned like uh mobile versions i have the mobile version of star realms and i have been bu- bugging <laughs> baruch to get the pay the five dollars so we can connect our phones yeah and now that he it took him it took him six months but he finally did it, and you've and been now that I'm the shit out of him, haven't you? I wish I could say that because I can't log on to my account. <laughs> I forgot my password. I have Cosmic an in. Justice. I have I have an in-game name, and when I hit forget password, it says resetting password for you, and then it says JDP85 doesn't exist, and I'm like that's bullshit. So then I hit get account. I'm doing this right now, and then it says. Uh, it's like, purchase already registered to JDP85. Please confirm for online play and choose the restore purchase to use your profile. Like what? What? F- fuck! So I don't. I don't. So, the, I don't know what this, I'm doing. This feels like restore. universal justice somehow. Yeah. Okay. And then it doesn't. This yeah. Burke, I don't even know this kid Baruch, and I feel so bad for him because seriously, you kick his butt friend. in every game. Oh well, my god! Well, well, there's that problem too. Yeah, there's, there's also my friend. <laughs> He's also, don't forget. Yeah, what did I do? He he was designing a game. It's a really nice concept. He's a sharp guy, and he had this game where it was um, it, the game was like three dwarfs are trying to steal a dragon's treasure, right? So one player is the dragon, and the other people are the dwarves. And so I'm the dragon, and he, he kind of based it a little bit on on like Dungeon Romp or or, or the, the Planeswalker game. Then he has a, a little bit of elements based on the Command and Colors games. So I'm playing the dragon, and the dragon gets first turn. And he's like, okay, you can move your dragon this many spots. Like, I'm going to just move straight forward at your door. So he's like, great. And then you can use 
you know, these attacks. I'm like, I'm going to fire attack you, right? And I, you roll the dice, and he's like, how do you win? You either kill two dwarves or you push two dwarves off the off out of the dungeon. I'm like, okay. So I roll two, do- uh, two dice, push the two dwarves backwards. And I was like, okay, your turn. He's like, no, you get one more attack. Roll again, fire attack, because, you know, you can only use so many fire attacks. And push the dwarf right. Both dwarves go right out the dungeon in, in the first turn. He's like, you just broke my game. <laughs> you just broke my game. <laughs> He's like, yep, you're done in the first turn. Yeah, that was that was really something. But uh, so I got this game from GMT in the mail called Talon. I'm all about space combat right now. Right. I, I, I cracked BFG uh, Battlefleet Gothic out of the out of the boxes, started playing that. Uh, I got Talon, a hex based space combat game from GMT. Super excited to try and get that. I was playing that by myself like a nerd to learn the rules. Pretty cool. And then uh, when, when Baruch's magic show got canceled because no one showed up for it, we went to a Game Empire over on Claremont Mesa and played uh, uh, some Star Realms Colony Wars. We played Colony Wars. There's some nasty and, uh, cards in that game. Yeah, I beat his ass so senselessly. Um, they, I noticed they, they cut down on the number of scrap cards and kind of cut down on the number of draw cards. So, like... We were playing, and we're like, we have like really big decks. Like right. this is this was interesting. There's not not the case in the first game where you just like draw a card, play this card, draw two more cards, play this, play the base, play this card, draw two cards, play this, and you're dead. Right. Like that. Like you can't really do that in Colony Wars. Uh, Did so you that ever was... open Ars Victor? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I definitely opened it, and I played it with Donnell, and she kicked the shit out of me. Like it was nice. not. It wasn't right. even close. Like just not even close. It was it was rough. And then uh, so Talon, and then I got Star Trek Attack Wing. I want to give that a try. There was a sale at at the lair, so I got that seventy five percent off. And then oh, I want to share this with you. So I've been reading a bunch of George Orwell essays because he was primarily an essayist, and not many people know a lot of his essays. I want to. Sh- I think we'll we'll close with this. Uh, we'll, we'll call this the quote of the episode or something. Uh, this is from Orwell's essay called shooting an elephant in in mole mine in uh in mole mine in lower burma i was hated by a large number of people the only time in my life i have found to have been important enough for this to happen to me <laughs> i thought that was uh, a nice. great orwell is known for arresting sentences opening sentences and that certainly was one of my favorite nice uh it's shooting and it's really literally about him shooting an elephant that went crazy and it, it went. No, it was one of those tamed elephants that went nuts on someone, and then ran around was stomping on stuff. And stomp describes people that get stepped on. He's like, he's like, I really don't want to shoot this elephant, but the entire village is watching me, and I have to shoot this elephant. Oh <laughs> and he my just gosh. Talked, He talked about how he just really all he wants to do is wait for the mahout to come get the elephant because it doesn't look like it's dangerous right now. But he's like, I gotta shoot this elephant. Yeah. And just like the grueling process of him shooting this elephant over and over again and not being able to get, find the death blow oh. and he just, finally he's just like finally he just he just walks away from it and he, and he says towards the end of the of the uh yeah i was, uh, in the end i could not stand it any longer and went away i heard later that it took him an hour to die the burmas were bringing dots and baskets even before I left, and I was told that they had stripped his body almost to the bones by the afternoon. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic one of his. He's uh, the more I'm learning about this guy, the more I'm interested in him. The more interesting he becomes. But that that does it for me. Nice. That almost sounds like a Vonnegut story. That doesn't even sound real. He has he has these great similarities to American writer. He's not a big American writer fan, but he's got another essay called The Hanging, and uh, it's very similar to a Hemingway essay, where Hemingway mm-hmm. watched an execution. There, there's there's similarities there. All right, folks, if you like what we do, make sure you head on, head on over to thereforeikeek.com. Check out our blog posts and our podcast. You can find us on on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. So once again, I'm Andrew. I'm Tracy. And I'm the dude. And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek.